In this ultra low interest rate environment that we're living in, how is it possible that you can buy investments today that pay 10, 15, even 20% dividend yield? Well, it is possible with what are called split share corporations. Now, if this sounds too good to be true, it may be. We're gonna talk about that in today's video. In a cloud in the sky, no worry in my mind. Looks like we're in the click, 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 to live in the life, cooler in the sunshine. For those investors who have discovered split share corporations and have fallen in love, I mean have fallen head over heels for this type of investment, they pay a very, very high yield. And it's easy to see why if you're an income investor, this is the type of income uh, of investment that would appeal to you. We're going to look at the different types of investments today and we're going to start with just a general overview of what they are because a lot of people have never even heard of them let alone know what they are so i'm going to give you a little bit of a primer to get started then we're going to look into sort of the ins and outs of, of uh, what split share corporations offer first of all in canada there are a few just a handful of companies that offer these type of investments some of the larger ones are companies like brompton funds strathbridge uh, quadravest middlefield group these are a few of these companies that offer these very, very enticing ultra high yield investment uh, vehicles here in Canada. And if you look at some of the current yields that these are paying, you're going to see as high as 19% uh, today. And there's a dozen or so of these funds that are offering double digit returns in this ultra low interest rate environment. To explain how this type of fund is structured, I'm going to use the material from one of the, uh, one of the more well-known split share fund corporation offerers here in Canada named the Brompton Funds. Now, they have really, really good material. I would say if following this video, you're interested in learning more about it, do check out their website. They have some really good uh, research and educational material. I'm gonna start right with the basics with what they call the Brompton Split Share Primer. So what are split share funds? Split share funds, or splits as they call them, are unique investment corporations that offer two distinct classes of shares. The two classes are one, class A shares, and two, preferred shares. And both of these trade separately on the TSX. In this video today, I'm gonna to be focused most on the class A shares because that's what most people are interested in and we'll learn more about that as we go along here. Now, typically when you buy a stock, you buy it for two purposes. One is obviously for capital appreciation. Also, many stocks, most pay uh, a dividend. So typically a quarterly dividend where they share the profits of those companies, uh, the profits of the company. And as an investor, you, you uh, benefit from both the increase in the share price, you also benefit from getting a cash flow in the dividend. Now, any split share structure, the fund effectively reallocates these two benefits between two separate classes. You have preferred shares, which receive the fixed cumulative quarterly payments, and you have the class A shares, which capture the movement of the underlying stocks, but in a more magnified way than if an investor owned the underlying portfolio of the securities directly. And this magnification of return is commonly known as leverage. Of these two different classes of shares, which would be appropriate for you? Well, it depends on what you're trying, what you're looking for. If you're looking for income, preferred shares are more conservative and they have a steady income stream. Uh, and this is because of their fixed cumulative quarterly payments. Now, what type of investor would the class A shares be appropriate for? In their material, Brompton says, a knowledgeable investor, not adverse to the ups and downs to the market, who is bullish on the underlying portfolio, may be interested in class A shares. Buying a class A share of a split rather than buying the underlying stocks yourself can result in magnified gains if the value of the underlying portfolio increases or, and this is important, magnified losses if the value of the underlying portfolio decreases due in each case to leverage. To try and help understand a little bit better on 
uh, how these funds actually are, are structured and how they work. I'm going to use uh, one of Brompton's flagship funds as sort of a proxy here as a representation of typically how these funds are structured. The ticker I'm going to use today is called LBS and this stands for the Life and Bank Split Corp. As you can see on their fund details sheet here, they have a very limited portfolio and in this case they own uh, 10 holdings only, the six largest Canadian banks and the four largest Canadian life insurance companies. Indeed, a very focused portfolio. The most important part of a split share corporation for most investors is the distributions or the dividends that are paid. And I'm gonna spend a little bit of time here now talking about how that works uh, in theory and how it's worked practically over the years. Starting with, uh, let's look at the prospectus for LBS. Now, when this uh, fund was issued, it was priced at a price of $25 per unit and that was split into two, as we mentioned, $10 for the preferred share and $15 per class A share. As it expands here on the investment objectives section from the prospectus, it says, the investment objectives for the class A shares are to provide their holders with regular monthly cash distributions targeted to be 10 cents per class A share. And this represents a yield on the issue price of 8% per annum. The investment objectives for the preferred shares are to provide their holders with cumulative preferential quarterly cash distributions, as I already mentioned, and the yield of this on the original price would be 5.25% uh, per annum, and to return the original issue price to the preferred shareholders at the time of redemption. And originally, that was November 29th, 2013, the maturity date. We're gonna talk about maturity dates and we're gonna talk about extensions uh, coming up just uh, in just a, a short while here. When you look at these objectives, when you look at pay, paying a return of 8% or a distribution of 8% on the Class A shares and 5.25% on the preferential shares, something should jump out at you immediately. When you look at the investments that they're holding, those 10 different securities, all good solid uh, yielding securities for sure, but they don't yield 8% per year regularly. They don't yield 5.25% uh, on a regular basis. So this presents a problem. And in order to, to handle the problem and to generate the cash that's necessary to provide these distributions, the distributions as it shows here are funded by capital appreciation, additional income earned from a covered call writing program and any excess dividend income earned in the underlying portfolio that is over and above what is needed to fund the preferred share dividends. So if I can kind of wrap that up into just general terms, real English, it basically means they're promising or they're uh, hoping, they're intending to distribute uh, a high level of income to their shareholders, but the investments that they are invested in don't generate that kind of income. So they have to sort of use other methods such as call, covered call writing, uh, leverage structures in order to generate that kind of yield. Really importantly, because most people, like I said, are buying these for the distribution, for the yield, let's take a look at the dividend history of this common, uh, of this uh, company, of this share, this class A shares, and it will help highlight sort of the, the ins and the outs and some of the pros and cons of how this actually works. So starting with sort of a long-term history, if we look right back to the inception of this company, we can see that they have in fact paid a lot of dividends. That's what you'd expect. Monthly dividends are a hallmark of this type of a structure. You will notice in this 15 or so year timeline here, there are a few areas where there are some gaps in the distributions. This can happen for a couple of different reasons. If we look at the most recent annual report in 2020, they write, for the year ended December 31st, 2020, distributions to class A shareholders were 40 cents per share. 
Now this is down from the 120 per share in 2019, reflecting four monthly distributions of 10% per class A share for the months of January, February, and November and December. And you will recall the investment objectives are to provide monthly payments of 10%. And in most cases that has happened, but in, in 2020, that didn't. There's a provision in the perspective that says the net asset value per unit was less than $15 for all the other months and consequently no distributions were made for those months. Notably, preferred share distributions were $0.55 cents per share unchanged from 2019. Basically what this means is when you look at the value of this fund, it has to be at least, the net asset value has to be at least $15 per share. If it falls below that, or if a distribution would take it below that, the class A shareholders won't get the distribution. The priority goes always to the preferred shareholder. What happened in 2020? Obviously with the pandemic, with COVID-19 hitting, you know, revenues, uh, share prices of companies dropped, uh, you know, dropped through the floor almost. And so the, the, the NAV, in fact, in this case, did drop below that amount, meaning that uh, by the prospectus, they wouldn't be distributing. If we look, take a closer look at 2020, we will see, in fact, what they've shown us here, where there's a big gap from the distributions that were paid up until early 2020, and then starting again late in 2020. Over the lifespan of this investment, and I am using this again as a proxy for all of these types of investments. So if you are interested, if you do invest in a split share corporation, it's important that you go back and understand exactly what the trading history is because they won't all act the same. But for the purposes of with LBS here, if we look back to 2012, when the fund uh, suspended dividends or didn't pay out the distributions for a, a few periods, and then going back to the credit crisis, where again, we saw a relatively long gap and most or many of the uh, distributions, uh, many, many of the class A funds uh, of various natures didn't pay distributions during that time. So in this type of investment, the appeal, the mainly, usually the only reason that people buy these is because of those high distributions. Really important, as we see here, to understand if you're investing in these, they are intended distributions, but they certainly aren't guaranteed. Make sure you factor that in when you're deciding if this type of investment is appropriate for you. I am gonna take a moment and talk about fees because you will be surprised in this, you know, we talked about low interest rates. We are in an era, an era of competitive and lowering and, and, and um, shrinking uh, management fees as well. However, if you are an investor in a split share corporation, you're not really benefiting in that uh, in that trend. If we look simply at the management fee of this fund, we'll see that the manager provides management and administrative services to the fund for which it is paid a management fee equal to 0.60%, so 60 basis points per annum of the net asset value of the fund. 0.60 doesn't seem bad on the face of it, but that's this is a really important fact here. The 0 0.60 isn't the MER. It is the management fee. MER, of course, is the management expense ratio. So you're often going to see a management fee, and then the expenses of the of the fund or of the investment or the company are above that, and then you're going to have management expense ratio, which takes the management fee and adds on the other expenses. Now, in this case, if we look at their 2020 annual report, we will see that in 2020, the management expense ratio for Class A shares of LBS was a whopping 13.01%. And if we look back in the prior years, it sort of hovers generally just below 10%. And that seems 
almost impossible that that would be the case. Now, there are a few reasons for this. Number one, the MER for Class A shares is based on the requirements of National Instrument 81-106, which is in the mutual fund world, and it includes the total expenses of the fund for the stated period, including distributions on preferred shares and issuance costs. In essence, what this means is that because they have split these two classes of shares, the preferreds are kind of just sitting there. They don't have a management fee on the on the preferred share portion. All of the expenses, including the distributions, that 5.25% that goes over to, to um, provide for those distributions on the preferred shares is also included in the management fee. In the expense ratio portion of this annual report, it does say, that the MER per class A share noted in the table was 20 uh, in 2020 was 13.01. Now it goes on to say, or to confirm, the MER per class A share includes preferred shares distribution, which represent the cost of leverage. This is what we talked about earlier, where in order to generate those higher returns that are expected, the company uses or the class A shares uses use leverage, which comes from the preferred shares. The MER per class A share, excluding preferred share distributions and issued costs, was 2.22% in 2020 and up from 2.13 for 2019. That is probably more what we're used to as far as looking at a management expense ratio. And I still think you know, north of two is still a pretty high number, but compared to the, you know, the 10, 11, 12-ish that we saw um, on, a, on a raw basis when you're transferring, when you're factoring in the, uh, the distributions to the preferred shares, the 2.2-ish sounds a little bit mo more reasonable. Most important to an investor, of course, is your return. So what is the performance of the funds? And out of the prospectus again, we're gonna look at what the expectations or what the goals are for this fund. In the prospectus, it shows that the required return, I'm just gonna read this paragraph, based on the assumptions that the gross proceeds of the offering are 200 million and fees and expenses are as presented in this prospectus, in order to achieve the company's targeted annual distributions for class A shares, which assumes that the preferred share distributions have been made, and assuming the original issue prices of the preferred shares and the class A shares are returned to the holders at the maturity date, the company will be required to generate an average annual total return comprised of net realized capital gains, options, premiums, and dividends of the in the portfolio of 9.1%. How have they done? I'm going to look first of all at the class A shares on the top line, and we can see that since inception, which is really what matters on, the, on a fund like this, the compound rate of return is 7.9%. Now, this is at the end of 2020. The Life and Bank Split Corp unit itself, the since inception compound return is 6.5%. Those have gone up with markets recovering out of COVID, and the most recent mid-year update shows 10.8% uh, for the Class A shares and 7.8% compound return for the units as a whole. So still struggling, still being challenged to meet that 9.1% goal that is ultimately what the investors are going to need if you want to get all of the promised distributions and get your money back at the end of the day. I thought it would be interesting to go and look at the year-by-year -year performance, and this will give us a sense of, of the volatility of the fund. If we look at the 2021 mid-year report, the class A share returns are shown on the first, the top line, the first part of the chart here, and it shows everything from minus 32% on a couple of years back in 2011 and 2018 to a high of 73% in 2013, and you know quite a bit in uh, quite a bit of, uh, of movement between there. So far in 2021, the, the fund has returned 55.5%. 
Now just compare that with the LBS unit. So this is now the class A shares and the preferred shares together. You'll see in most cases, the returns on an annual basis are half or less than half of that. Again, this just highlights the uh, leverage feature. If we look a little bit further back, going back to inception, we'll see uh, quite some interesting numbers here. I found uh, in, 20, in 2009, the fund returned 157%. Now that was of course following a 68% decline during the credit crisis back in 2008, but there's a lot of up and down uh, performance in a fund like this. And what this shows me, and the reason I wanted to highlight this in particular was because clearly a fund like this is not for the faint of heart. This is, um, although a lot of investors think because it pays a regular uh, high yield, this is more for a conservative uh, yield uh, searching and uh, yield seeking investor, it's not. There is, you need a high risk tolerance to successfully uh, operate at a function in a fund like this uh, for a period of time. In some respects, I would draw an analogy between a split share corporation fund here and real estate. And the analogy I would give is this. If you are interested in uh, buying a rental property and you, uh, let's say in the in the area, the average monthly uh, rent that you would command from most places is let's just call it $1,000 a month. If you find a unit inside of that apartment building or in the neighborhood where the rent is $2,000 a month, so double what you would get. And, and there's a parallel here. The banks are paying sort of in the three, four, 5% range these are paying 10% up. So at least that will maybe even triple in some cases, you're getting a higher return. Does the fact that you're getting a higher rent for that unit mean that it's a good investment? I would argue vehemently, no. You need to still understand the, the investment itself. Are you buying a, you know, a crack house that has got a very, very low capital value or that will be depreciating in value? Are you in a neighborhood that the actual investment itself is going to deteriorate or perhaps go away even though you're collecting a high level of rent? I think if you draw the comparison there, you look here at the high level of, in, of income that you're generating from a company like this, but what about your capital? What about that money that you put in in the first place What's happening with it? Because at the end of the day, the goal is you want to be able to get that back. Well, preferably you want to get more back. But let's look at what happens in reality in a fund like this. So pulling up LBS on the screen here, you'll see that since inception, the fund has gone from that issuance price, and this goes back 15 years or so, of $15 per share, currently trading at just over $10 per share. Now in a percentage perspective, that fund has lost 28.87% of the value. That's like getting that apartment and paying you know $500,000 for the apartment. And when you check back in 15 years later, the value has actually diminished by 30%, not increased as we would expect. But in an investment like this, because it has two features, it's got the capital and it's got the income, you have to factor in the income and the income for a company like this is high. So how has that impacted the overall return? It is after all, at the end of the day, what's left in your pocket. So if we uh, include the share price, but now we factor in the distributions over all those years, you'll see that the fund has in fact, indicated here by the blue line, increased 344, almost 345% over that time period. So despite the capital value dropping, the net return, the, the uh, full, the total return for this investor has been closer to 350%. I'm gonna show you another example of one of Canada's larger split share corporations. And I know 
I, I see a lot of comments about DFN. It's the Dividend 15 Split Corporation, just to give you a comparison. And it's very similar. This is a Quadrivest in, uh, fund. And you can see over their lifespan, over its lifespan, that it has dropped by about 38% as a capital price. However, the fund has, like LBS, returned in the range of 350% as of today, slightly above that. Very, very similar where you have these two, two characteristics, the capital price diminishing, but the, but the interest or the income, the distributions compensating for that, you still come out with that return at the end. Hey everybody, it's Brandon here. I'd like to interrupt today's episode very briefly to remind you that if you're looking for more training in the Canadian stock market, don't hesitate to check out our Investing Academy. You can join our private membership group and get access to our top stock picks, trade calls, portfolio insights, and a variety of tools that are helping our members all across the country better their own investing journeys. All it takes is one great stock idea or tip, and that alone can cover years and years of your subscription to our membership group. If you're looking for some additional video training to broaden your knowledge and expand your understanding of the stock market in Canada, we do of course offer a fully video online training program where you can learn from the comfort of your home amongst a variety of students across the country. Both of these products can be found at www.theinvestingacademy.ca where you can sign up for them online or schedule a call with us to learn more. Now back to our scheduled episode. So you'd have to ask yourself, both of these funds invest in the Canadian financial space. So banks, insurance companies. You have a choice always. You can pick investment A or B if you want to invest in that space or C or D or E. But just to compare here, there's an investment in Canada which is called XFN. That's the ticker on it. It is the iShares S&P Capped Financials Index ETF. And it represents the financial sector in Canada, uh, uh, an apples to apples comparison. When you look at two things here, first of all, the green line, which is the share price over the same time period as we just looked at for the other two funds, you'll see notably, although of course there is a lot of volatility in the fund as there will be in this sector, you see an upward trend. The fund has been, or the index has been increasing in value, trending in value higher over the years. You will also see the total return in the yellow line uh, which is growing and it's a combination here of a lower dividend but a appreciating capital price and you'll see that over the years that has increased uh, and is uh, growing by about just over 410 percent if we look at these and sort of overlay these and look at the contrast the green line is xfn the blue and the purple lines are lbs and dfn uh, respectively and you again this is where you really see over that 15 year time period, you see the upward trend of the index itself. You see the downward trend uh, from a price perspective on the two split share corporations. I'll overlay the total returns. This is at the end of the day, like I say, what you're going to want to get. You're gonna want uh, the highest rate of return you can. In this time period, the XFN has returned about 415%, DFN about 350%, and LBS around 350% as well. Let's call that a tie between those two. You could argue, I wanna invest in the Canadian financial space. Why would I take the risk of going into this relatively complicated uh, structured vehicle with some downside risks that don't come along with owning the index in and of itself uh, and what you know why would I would I not just pick XFN and, and we've seen here since these came about XFN has in fact 
being the more profitable investment. Well, this is where it comes down to uh, investing versus trading. And there are some opportunities to trade the, uh, the split share corporations because of that leverage effect. You're gonna see a lot more swings in them. And if that's what you're trying to accomplish here, that's a suitable, you know, this is a suitable vehicle for that. If you're a long-term buy and hold investor, however, you know, maybe that isn't the case. Now, let's take a look at some numbers here just to compare these though. And a 10-year time window is the first one we're gonna look at. Now, when we look at these three same investments over this time period, LBS is the clear winner at over 410% growth. XFN, the index is uh, next at 223%, and DFN, it comes in third place at uh, 130%. If we shorten that number to, time, to uh, five year, you're gonna see LBS still in the lead at 122%, XFN at 80 and change, and DFN at around 44%. This might indicate that, well, on a shorter time period, the you would lean towards buying the split share versus the index, yes and no, depending on the time period, obviously. And if you're an astute enough investor and you can read and you happen to time things properly, that might work in your favor. But of course, we know last year what happened with the uh, COVID hit, and we had the credit crisis, and let's look at what, or sorry, we had the COVID market crash, and we'll see what happened there. During the month of March last year, everything fell. The financial index fell in the, well, in the 20, just over 20% at the time of this chart here, 18, almost 19% negative, but compare that to DFN at down 40% and LBS at down 44%. And LBS at one point was down, I believe, in the 60% range. And so this is an indication, again, of the extra volatility. And hopefully if you are, uh, well, hopefully if you are timing the market, you happen to, uh, to time it well. Another feature of these funds is they aren't, they aren't designed to last forever. In fact, they basically have a five-year lifespan that can, year, uh, that can be extended by the board of directors. So every fund has a five-year window, and at the end of that time, at the discretion of the board, they can either you know, wind up the fund or extend it for another five years. In the prospectus, when we're dealing with the Class A shares, there's a clause that says the outstanding Class A shares with a five-year term has a maturity date of October 30th, 2023. So let's call that two years from today. That's the next maturity date. The redemption price payable by the fund for a Class A share on that date will be equal to the greater of the net asset value per unit on that date minus the sum of $10, which goes to the preferred shareholders, plus any accrued or unpaid distributions on the preferred shares, and nil, zero. It's possible that if the board of directors decides to wipe or to, to wipe out, to wrap up this fund, in some cases, in the worst case scenario, you would get zero dollars back on your investment. You would get, uh, you know, the, the, you'd take the net asset value and if it was below $10, then you would, you know, that $10 would go to the preferred shareholders and you would get zero as a class A shareholder. You know, obviously we hope that doesn't happen. And in fact, I would say we wouldn't expect that to happen, but that's possible. The major considerations that I think an investor should have if you're looking at this split corp, and I'll, I'll cover off both prefs here and the class A, if you're looking to buy a, uh, a preferred share part of this uh, of this structure, who's that for? First of all, it's, it's a passive investment. You're gonna sit back, you're gonna collect the dividends. There's a very steady income stream that you can expect and it's guaranteed to get that ahead of the class A, class A shareholders is a very, very steady market, steady price. You're not gonna be looking at ups and, uh, ups and downs of the market. In fact, 
you're not going to expect to get gains because inherent, while there isn't the potential for gains um, outside of uh, you know any of the capital gains of the, the investors themselves, will go to the Class A shareholders. At windup, if and when that does occur, you get your investment back, the full, you know, the $10, assuming the fund has $10 in value, that's guaranteed. And you do have a priority claim uh, against any assets of the company. So um, in the event that it is below the $10, you're going to get first claim on those before the Class A shareholders would. Now, the major characteristics of the Class A shares is certainly it's a more aggressive investment strategy. You participate in the gains or losses of the underlying assets, and in fact, um, they're leveraged. So those gains are magnified, as we've seen so far in 2020, 2021, uh, but also you're going to see uh, more on the downside, as we saw earlier on one of those charts, we saw you know roughly a, a, a twice as much of a swing, either on the upside or on the downside. The distributions are targets. They're not guaranteed. They're not fixed. So as we saw earlier, if you're um, if you're buying these for the income distribution, uh, they may be missed. On the flip side to that, on a positive, if there are any special distributions that come in from the entities that you own, from the banks, from the insurance companies, those extra distributions above what it takes to provide for the preferred shares will go over to uh, the Class A shares. So there's a, a possible benefit there. At windup, as I just covered off a moment or two ago, uh, it's not a good situation generally where you, uh, you know, potentially could lose both your investment and, of course, any cash flow that comes uh, from there. There are some drawbacks specifically to investing in uh, these split share corporations. I want to cover those off here. The first drawback I would say is that um, a lot of people don't understand how these work. You're, you're uh, mesmerized by those returns. You might look back at the chart and say, wow, in 16 years, they may have missed you know, 10, 10 payments. I can live with that. And you don't really understand the asset behind, you know, the structure behind which you're investing. And I would go back to that real estate uh, example or analogy I gave you where if you're buying a really crappy uh, investment or crappy building, um, that the value of that may decline. And that could be happening in the background here as well. If you need the cash flow, so there's you might invest in these shares just as a part of your fixed income investing because you want to get that that uh, the regular cash flow but if you need this cash flow to pay for your bills uh, that would be uh, you know catastrophic I would say in the event of another financial crisis or something uh, like that where the you know the worst case is the dividends stop at the exact same time uh, that the markets have crashed and that's typically why the dividends will stop so you're getting hit from both sides on that and that would be just a sad situation if you're, uh, I'm going to talk in just a moment here a little bit more about, about that. Um, remember that you are very uh, focused on a specific sector. So as compared to a normal equity investor where you typically have a broad uh, diversified portfolio, these are very focused. And I've covered off the financials here, but there's some in oil, gas, oil, oil and gas industry. There are some literally these structures that have one fund, like Enbridge has a, there's a split share corporation that is uh, focused and the only investment is Enbridge. So it can be very, very risky in that case. We looked at fees. Fees are definitely on the higher end of things. Uh, and, you know, in this age where we're so concerned about fees, uh, they, you know, you might want to consider whether there's the value that you're getting there. We did talk a little bit earlier about how covered call, the covered covered call strategy, is used to fund above and beyond the distributions that that they get from the investments themselves. Um, that's a good thing because it generates extra income to the portfolio, but it also, at the same time, 
Uh, on the other side of the coin is it limits the upside of the uh, of the growth of the portfolio. And remember, you're relying on both capital growth and the dividend income from the underlying assets. So the way that works, if you're familiar with uh, with writing call options is that when a call option is written, the amounts that the company will be able to realize on the security during the term of the call option will be limited to the dividends received prior to the exercise of the call option during such period plus an amount equal to the sum of the strike price and the premium received from writing the option. In essence, the company will forego potential returns resulting from any price appreciation of the security underlying the option above the strike price in favor for the certainty of receiving the option premium itself. So it, it's a little bit counterintuitive here, but the fact that you're generating that extra income from writing those covered call strategies can actually or will actually limit the upside uh, on the portfolio as well. I want to take just a couple of minutes and look at the taxable implications, you know, how tax treatment of this type of an investment uh, is are structured. Uh, going again from the prospectus, it shows that the company will qualify and intends to continue to qualify as a mutual fund corporation under the Income Tax Act. As far as the distributions are concerned, dividends other than capital gains dividends or ordinary dividends received by individuals on the preferred shares and the class A shares will be subject to the normal gross up and dividend tax credit rules. So that's a positive as a Canadian investor. Any capital gains dividend that is received by the shareholder from the company will be considered to be a capital gain of the shareholder from the distribution or the disposition of capital property in the taxation year of the shareholder in which the capital gain is received. So capital gains, you settle up for those right away. And those are realized capital gains and the amount of any payment received by a shareholder as a return of capital on a preferred share or a class A share will not be required to be included in income. So that sounds like a positive thing. Instead, the amount will reduce the adjusted cost base of such share to the shareholder, assuming that the share is held as capital property by such shareholders. So this basically means that uh, when the company does what's called a return of capital, and we're gonna look at that right now, that's not a taxable event, but it will occur uh, at some point down the road when you sell that investment or when it is you know, when the when the fund is wound up, you'll be responsible for uh, for settling up on taxes on that. So the way that that works in a nutshell is when you buy an asset, uh, let's say you pay that fifteen dollars a share. If the company gives you a dollar of your money back, you don't get paid. You don't pay tax on that. But the adjusted cost base of that investment is now fourteen dollars. You got the dollar off the 15. So if you were to sell it now, you now incur a dollar of capital gain. And as we'll see, um, there are times where there aren't enough dividends or enough premiums from the covered calls uh, to, to make up the difference, to, to uh, meet their obligations or meet, meet their targets rather for giving you your distributions. And so return of capital is a regular part of this fund. If we look back at the 2020 year that we looked at earlier, now of course there were only four distributions last year as opposed to the intended 12. However, of the 10 cent distributions that were made on all four of them, 81, almost 82, or sorry, 8.2 cents of that came from the return of capital. So the dividends that came into the portfolio were uh, only 0 .1, uh, 0.018 of the 10 cents. And most of that return of, uh, of that distribution came from return of capital. So the fund wasn't in fact generating the revenue to pay it. Here's some of your own money back. I randomly looked through a few other tax years in 2018. If we look at, they did make 12 distributions of 10%. Again, 
eight, you know, about 85% of that came from return of capital, your own money coming back to you as opposed, opposed to dividends. I look back at 2013. In that year, all of the distributions that you received as a Class A shareholder were return of capital. And uh, I look back finally at the 2010 tax year. I just kind of was clipping back uh, just every few years at a time and came across uh, 2010, which was uh, the same thing, where all of the money that came back to you was your money coming back in the first place. And so um, it's good in the short term, but really you want to invest in an asset that is generating more income, more growth, and paying you back from those gains as opposed to just handing you the money that you put in in the first place. That kind of in a nutshell, that kind of I'll wrap up is how what a split share corporation is, how they work, hopefully some pros and cons, and you can make a determination for yourself whether you should or shouldn't invest in that. I would say um, most people probably shouldn't. Um, if you're an experienced seasoned investor, you probably don't own a lot of these in your portfolio, uh, mainly because you'll have a longer term uh, perspective on how these investments have panned out over the years. Um, if you are a newer investor, especially if you, you know if you started investing like so many did post COVID, you've had a year and a half of stellar gains. You've had you know consistent high yield on your investment. So they, these look like you know like silver bullets, but uh, but really um, you have to look deeper than that. Now, again, as I said earlier, if you are a trader, if you're actively managing these investments and you feel comfortable buying and selling the, the appropriate at the times, this can be a very good investment for that. It all depends on your need. A couple of other things that come to my mind are things like um, the concentration risk. These are always focused on a very narrow uh, niche in the market. So be careful uh, because you will be subject to the ups and downs of that sector in general. As I mentioned earlier, there are uh, there's leverage risk inherent in the Class A shares. That's a big feature of the fund. I would just say don't make the mistake of being lured in by the high, uh, you know, by the high yields. If you have really high income here, but the investment is dwindling on the other side, then uh, you know there may not be uh, the best investment for you. Finally, on this note, I would say, uh, I can't emphasize this enough, if you rely on the cash flow. So a worst case example is you've saved up a nest egg and you've invested that nest egg in this type of investment because of that attractive yields. Um, you're taking a huge chance and you're jeopardizing your security in retirement. And, you know, we talk about, you know, there's months where you will miss dividends. And if you're, if you're, if you're living off those dividends, well, what are you going to do? when you don't have that money coming in, unless you've got money saved up. Uh, and if you need to sell other assets to fund that, well, when are you selling them? Well, typically at the worst time, right? So you've got that nest egg eroding, and at the same time, uh, you've got the, you know, the, your investments that are supporting your cash flow uh, disappearing. And, and there's just, to me, there's too much risk there if this is what you're living on in retirement. I would just say, be very careful in that regard. If you're a trader and you're gonna go out and make a bunch of money by trading and, and, and taking advantage of the leverage, then um, then all, all, all the more to you. So that kind of you know shares with you what these investments are and, and hopefully gives you the tools that you might need if you're considering. And I again, as I said earlier, I've seen a lot of comments and there's been a lot of inquiries both on our channel and even within our investing academy, um, people talking about, you know, should we be looking at, at split shares uh, as part of our uh, investment portfolio? Speaking of the Investing Academy, as always, the first link below this video here is for our Investing Academy, and I've encouraged you to visit that 
and um, you know we're constantly evolving the academy and growing it and there's some really exciting things happen so I encourage you to, encourage you to just have a, a browse around there uh, I will uh, wrap up the video today if you learned something if you liked the video if you felt there was value I uh, really appreciate a thumbs up on it if you feel that you know someone else who is, a, is an investor who could benefit from this type of information I know that there's a way to forward this on to them and, and they would appreciate it and of course so would I so I'll thank you very much for watching the video and I look forward to seeing you in the the next video.